Jane Cuthbert, candidate for the Cairns Regional Council election. Law graduate, community-focused person. It sounds like you're a typical candidate for councils, but of course you're not, and we're going to get into that later on. And that's why you think you're the right person for the job. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Mate, thanks so much for having me on. And you can't move on social media for seeing what you're doing right now in the Cairns community. It's clear that you really care about what's going on. We were just talking off air. You've been hit by the cyclone recently. It was chaos for the past probably five weeks. I don't know how long it's been in Cairns and you've been out there in the rain and in the cleanup. So you really care about where you live and you're running on the campaign of Make Cairns Safer, which I'd like to get into. But I said you're not the typical candidate for a council role. And, and I'd like to start with, with why that's the case and what makes you unique and different to your typical average uh, candidate for a council role. Yeah, of course. Look, uh, if elected, I would be the first formerly incarcerated politician in Australia um, at all levels, local, state and federal. And, you know, we've had plenty of politicians that uh, have been arrested or found themselves in trouble whilst in in government or afterwards um look i don't know if anyone's tried i I don't know if i'm the first to have tried um but i'm certainly working very very hard um in my community to to do that i'm running independently for the cairns local council the elections uh in a couple of weeks from now actually it's not far off and um as you mentioned we've been hit by a cyclone and I was out really in the middle of that um, highlighting issues and road closures and blockages and issuing warnings and just trying to do my bit during the cyclone but afterwards we had uh, we recorded the greatest flood we've ever had since they started recording so we had um, oh houses just went under um, and I was out there basically the next day walking through people's houses, people that had lost everything, you know, with my gum boots on, um, they had sewerage and sludge and all sorts. I mean, it, what was really fascinating to me was, you know, fridges are pretty heavy. Um, and we would just go into every house and the fridges were tipped over and they'd be there up the hallway. They'd ended up in people's bedrooms. Some of them found their ways just out onto the street, you know, just out through someone's window or something like that. And I just thought that was incredible to see. I was really moved um, the first day. Uh, I'm a grown man. I I wasn't affected myself. You know, I had a little bit of rain come through my front door, but I was, I was out trying to help people in need. And, and, and what really got to me was um, an elderly couple on the first day and, we were taking everything out, you know, beds and furniture, really trying to get everything out of these people's houses onto the side of the road so they could start cleaning up inside. And uh, I've gone to move this bed and this elderly lady said, look, no, no, that's got to stay. And I, I said, oh, well, it's completely soaked. The water had come in over the top of it. And she said, no, my elderly husband, you know, he's sick. He's got nowhere else to lay. And she expected him to 
lay down on this, you know, this wet bed. And that, that just really got to me. Um, we heard later on that there was still an elderly couple a week later that were living and sleeping in um, a flood-affected home on soggy, wet uh, bedding and things like that. They ended up in hospital and I'm not sure if they were aware that there was support out there or they were so elderly that they just, you know, kept to themselves. There was really incredible people that we came across. I remember one street in Mations Beach, which was probably one of the hardest hit streets. You know, we were going up to houses and saying, hey, mate, we're here to help you, you know, spare set of hands. Do you want us to take stuff out? We're here to clean. And, um, and they'd say, no, nah, mate, there's someone else more in need. And and we'd all look at each other, us volunteers, and we'd think this is the hardest hit house we've ever seen. I mean, everything is completely gone. And these guys were just so selfless and they were just, no, 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 go. They were thinking about other people. Um, so I've seen, you know, I, I made the decision to run for council, you know, probably a couple of years ago really I've been building up to this but in the last few weeks I've truly seen the best um of the community and it you know really just reinforces what I'm doing um doing what I can to help the community have you been in Cairns all your life were you born in Cairns no so I grew up in Sydney um in Blacktown Mount Druitt um had quite a tough upbringing, actually. I've been in Cairns only now for about six years or so. And um, and why I'm so passionate about Cairns is, you know, I, I was brought to Cairns basically through prison. So I was transported up to the prison up here, basically got a bus ticket to the local uh, shopping centre in 2018 was when I was last released. And, and I was homeless. I had so many... Uh, struggles at the time and I rebuilt my life here in Cairns I changed my life here in Cairns it's a beautiful place lots to do um and I stayed I I have a beautiful partner now uh, we've been together for five years and friends and family and I, I've got a great support network here now but you know really I I started with nothing um started from scratch really you know and sort of had a yeah, fresh start here and, and I've just been so grateful to the community um, for giving me that opportunity. And it must be so hard when, when you come out of prison and just trying to rebuild your life. And I'd like to spend a lot of time on, on that because it does give you a unique insight into yeah what it means to be part of community and when community is working for people and, and groups of people and when it isn't. But, yep. you know, let, let's start with what took you to that position in the first place then. So, you know, without, without going into too much detail, um, yep. I want to understand you as a person and, and your experiences. So life in Sydney... You know, you you, you, yeah. you weren't involved in things that, that you perhaps would want to be now looking back. But, you know, yeah. what, what, what was your life looking like that put you in a position that ended up putting you in prison up in Cairns? Look, it's a um, really it's it's, you know, a long story when I look back at my life and, and how I got to to where I am now. Um, you know, I was raised by a single mum. I was I was had a lot of struggles when I was younger, you know, mental health struggles. Um, I was molested by my older cousins. I have only recently started talking about that. You know, I've only just told my mum about that in the last probably two, three years. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, in itself is quite, uh, it's quite 
damaging and traumatizing. Um, and people quite often do not talk about that for many, many years. I mean, I was a kid, probably seven, eight-ish, and you know that it's wrong. Um, I remember thinking that it was wrong, but you it's a very tough thing to explain because I think now I think, why didn't I tell somebody about that? But you just feel, I mean, for a lot of people, they're groomed. Um, you think you're going to get in trouble if you tell someone about it. Um, so I was struggling with that, dealing with that. Um, had a single mom, didn't have my dad, didn't have a you know male role model when I was you know younger. And um, I was getting into a little bit of trouble at school. I was actually being bullied quite severely. Um, and one time actually I was, I was bullied so badly. Um, this older kid had picked me up and threw me on the ground and I compound, uh, fractured my arm and I passed out from the blood loss. You know, I was bleeding everywhere. Basically, you know, I had nerve damage and things like that. Went to hospital, spent a couple of weeks in hospital and had a bunch of surgeries, um, because the bone in my arm had actually come out of the arms. It was quite, quite traumatic for me. And I think that was one of the big turning points was that hospital experience is that I hated it, that I really became depressed. I was given morphine um, and I got addicted to morphine and I was nine years old. Um, I just remember if I was awake, I was vomiting, I felt sick, I was coming down, they're trying to wean me off the morphine. And as a kid, I didn't understand. Obviously, I didn't know what drug addiction was. I didn't know what coming down was. I just knew that I was sick. And I I don't even, I mean, I didn't know what suicide or depression was at the time either. No one really explained that to me. But I was very, very depressed. I, I was very, very depressed. And I, you know, I spent a couple of weeks in hospital. I, I had a little brother as well that's two years younger than me. So my mum had to still juggle trying to work um, and raise my brother, take him to school. So there were a lot of nights there where I was I was by myself, you know, in a hospital um, bed um, coming down off morphine and it was just uh, it was a horrible time for me and I, I got out. I didn't quite fit back into normal routines um, of school and things like that and um, I'd had enough of being bullied and, and what I'd done is I'd taken a little pocket knife to school and, um, I'd actually confronted one of my bullies and then the teachers obviously grabbed me, called the police, and I, I'm not sure who identified it at that point, but someone had sort of said, hey, this kid's, you know, maybe got some issues or does have some issues and, and needs some serious help. And the decision was made then that I was nine years old and they put me in a mental health facility for children. Um which was, again, another really um, interesting experience. Um, you know, I had all sorts of kids there. So there were kids that were breaking into houses, stealing cars, um, extremely violent. Uh, there was kids nine years old that were using drugs. Um, then there was kids that had mental health issues like Asperger's, um, some showing signs of schizophrenia. There was a girl that was bulimic that was, you know, eating spiders and cockroaches and really an eclectic mix of people. Um, looking back, I don't think that that was a great thing for me. I, I learned how to swear there. I picked up a lot of bad habits. I learned how to do bad things for attention. 
um, I was locked in a room in a classroom once um, while a couple of the other kids were, I don't know, getting up to mischief or something. And they, they, they'd locked me in the classroom by myself and I picked up a chair and I threw it through the window and not to escape the room, just to, I knew that the, the nurses that we had there would obviously come running back in after hearing this glass smash and just see me sitting there in the corner. And it was just a bit of a, I guess, trying to get some attention um, and things like that. And so when I, I think I was there for about nine months. So going back as a 10 year old, trying to go back into year three, year four of school, I didn't fit in, in a normal school. Um, I was behind in my schoolwork. So I felt shame and, um, you know, all that sort of anxiety that comes with that, where you go into a new classroom, you got to make new friends. I'd been bullied. I'd just spent nine months in a mental health facility. So all those, you know, starting a new school is difficult for any kid. You've got to sort of make friends and um, you know, go up to kids and say, hey, this is, I'm Shane, do you like me? You know, can we play? But I didn't fit in because I had all of these, you know, weird quirks and um, attention-seeking behaviours that I'd picked up in the mental health facility. So then, you know, I, I basically lasted a couple of months in school and then I was homeschooled by my mum for a couple of years because I just didn't fit into the system. But then, you know, your social skills um, become even more poorer. Um, and then as someone that's had been bullied, it's then even harder to make that transition into high school, which I did. Um, and I did fit in in high school, but, you know, I eventually got expelled. I was, you know, um, up to no good there as well. And, and look, really, I'm, I'm very lucky that at a young age from seven, I started playing drums and I was really good. And I, I started a band in high school. Um, and we didn't do too good, but, you know, it kept us out of trouble because I grew up in Blacktown, Mount Druitt, which was a very low socioeconomic area. You know, we had gangs, we had, you know, kids my age were going out graffitiing stuff, selling drugs. Um, there was always fights out the front of school, things like that. It was a real rough, rough area. Um, and music kept me out of that for a little while, but I still hadn't dealt with the childhood trauma, the issues from really just my experiences as a kid that I didn't understand. Um, I got quite a lot of media attention as a young kid as well, which which also was not helpful. How was that? Um, look, at the time, I remember thinking it was fun and, you know, um, and even my mum was like, oh, you're going to be on TV tonight. Like I remember it being a positive thing. Uh, but I look back on it now and I think I was just everybody's sort of test dummy. I actually was a test dummy for uh, a bunch of medications like Ritalin and things like that. Um, I went somewhere in uh, Sydney where they had me take a different medication every four hours, which I, I don't think that they'd let kids do these days, um, and monitor me. Um, you know, and some made me sick, some made me tired, some made me cry. Um I actually ended up on an antidepressant, which made me depressed. Um, and I struggled with that for many years as a child, not being able to articulate, hey, I'm depressed. But, you know, I had a current affair come around when I was nine years old. And, and it was these guys that 
they brought this technology over from uh, the United States. They were testing. Um, they'd hook up, sort of put a helmet on my head and hook up sort of these electrodes. And if I could concentrate, I uh, could drive a car. So I was hooked up to a computer, sitting in front of a TV screen. Um, but if I started thinking about what I was going to have for lunch, you know, the car would go off the road. So this was... This technology was pretty incredible, actually, for the time. Um, and they still use that now, actually, for treating ADHD um, around around the place. But um, I was one of the first people for that. But the guy that brought that from America, um, Professor, he wanted to get attention for what the work that he was doing and things like that. So he was calling up the media and I was doing Late Line, you know, Channel 7, Current Affair, all these TV shows, Women's Weekly, you know, magazines. And the story was, here's this out-of-control kid that we're using this brand-new, you know, technology sort of testing on. I didn't know the story at the time. You know, for me, it was just, oh, look, there's my picture. I'm on the front page of a magazine or or I'm on TV. So I thought it was great. So here I was getting negative attention in that um I had a lot of difficulties with that sort of later on in life as well is sort of having to come to terms with, you know, I was, I was surrounded by these adults that thought they knew best or didn't know what they were doing or really were using me um, for their own gain. And I was just a kid. Yeah. And with that TV um, thing, it's almost like you were getting a reward for for you know being this person that you were how did you end up yeah. on this experimental train where they were trying different technology and different drugs look i really don't know um my mom single mom was just thinking hey i need to do something to help my son um so obviously she would have been researching this stuff getting in contact with people maybe you know people were approaching her saying hey I've heard of this or heard of that. Um, she didn't know what to do. She was just like, hey, um, I need to do something with my kid. And then she just found these people that were, <laughs> you know, I, I think meaning, well-meaning as well, but, you know, also exploitative in a way. And I don't think at the time anyone thought that the media was having any negative impact on me. You know, I think they just thought, I really think we've come a long way um, with child psychology now. I think we understand that, hey, kids are pretty switched on and, you know, we know that kids, that if they're experiencing trauma when they're two, three, four, has an effect on them later in life, whereas I don't think we thought that, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, So, I mean, that's a good thing. I hope that this sort of stuff isn't happening to kids (laughs) uh, these days. Um, cause it wasn't, it wasn't good for me. Um, but unfortunately at the time you're a kid and you don't understand. So you're just doing what you're told. Um, I remember current affair, uh, which is one of the major TV programs, um, even now, um, and we've got the internet, but you know, we didn't have the internet back then, you know, we didn't have Facebook and social networks. So people would sit down and watch the news and watch a current affair every night. And it was huge. And the producers had me on my tra- on the, on a trampoline in the backyard, you know, telling me to, oh, can you push your brother off the trampoline? You know, like we want to get a shot of that. 
And I just thought at the time it was like, oh, okay, I, like I'm on TV. That's what TV do. You know, my mum was there. My mum allowed it to happen. Um, but I think back down, I think there was all these people, the cameraman, the producer, my mum, like there was all these people standing around that just allowed that to happen. Um, and it just sort of mind boggles me now because I think about, I haven't got children yet, but I think about having my own children and I think, I wouldn't let that happen, you know. Um, anyway, maybe times have changed. I, I you would I hope they had. But... You, you really <laughs> would, but who you know who knows? I've had no experience with with TV, but you know yeah. all the stories about what's gone on in the past, and you've clearly got lived experience yeah. of that. So, yeah, you're a typical. You're, you're a kid that's a bit of a handful, you know, and and yeah, that's yeah. They're not an isolated case, you know. There's there's lots of kids yeah. like that. But then you get on this train and you're trying these different things and then you get some media exposure. So you start yep. to become the kid who's a bit of a handful yes. with a reputation for being a bit of a handful. Um, but nothing yep. crazy at this point in time. So yep. what is it that yep. sets you down the path that eventually puts you behind bars? So I was I was on a... Um, really, I, I was 15 years old and I was playing drums um, in bands, travelling around and, and music kept me going for you know many years it kept me out of trouble um i think i would have ended up in trouble or prison much earlier if it wasn't for that and it was being in my early 20s really as a washed up musician not really going anywhere getting into drugs um being depressed having to deal with that trauma from my childhood not really knowing how to handle that just doing stupid stuff. You know, I was really, look, I wasn't hurting um, anyone, really. I was just hurting myself. You know, I, I wore a clown costume to court um, thinking that was funny. I was high as a kite. Um, I did a lot of dumb, stupid stuff like that that kept getting me into trouble. Um, you know, most of it I can laugh about it and say, oh, okay, that was funny. I thought that was funny back then. Now I've grown up. <laughs> uh, I don't use drugs anymore. Um, but really, that was where I started out. And then, you know, it got to the point where I, I'd i been arrested for drink driving four times. Um, I drink drove a lot. Um, you know, again, using drugs. Um, just on a, again, not really hurting anyone, but just on a, not a war path, but on a, I was on a destructive path, a self-destructive path. Um, you know, when I was finally arrested and finally went to prison, I'd been pulled over for drink driving. I saw the police and I reversed the car, which was evade police. I then got out of the car. I ran and jumped someone's back fence to get away from the police. That was trespassing. When the police tried to arrest me, I'd resisted arrest. I was on bail. I had breach of bail. Um, there was 11 charges, actually, that I had. And that was I was on bail for a whole bunch of stuff, just, again, stupid stuff, all alcohol or drug-related, um, and just got to that point where I ended up in prison and I spent six months in prison. Um, not a long time, um, but it was, again, another traumatic time for me. Um, I'd had a lot of negative media attention again at, at that time as well. Um, I ended up being sold up with, with really, um, 
a bad person, um, a rapist that had was in there at the time for the manslaughter of their own six-month-old child, um, actually set to be released soon. Um, they were serving 10 years for that. And I was really, look, at this point I was mid-20s. I wasn't a career criminal. I wasn't uh, breaking into homes. I wasn't uh, stealing to get by. I wasn't selling drugs. I wasn't a gangster. I wasn't really um, a criminal. I wasn't someone that had spent my whole life in and out of prison. Um, I was someone that probably needed a little bit more support, some drug and alcohol support, some rehab, some mental health support to start unpacking some of that childhood stuff. Um, but I didn't get any of that support and I certainly didn't get it in prison. And prison traumatised me even more. Um, I was sexually assaulted with a prison knife in, in prison. Um, effectively, I was in a cell with someone that was trying to make me his bitch basically you know it was just started out um you know started out with a couple of punches and you know i'm, I'm just toughening you up you know you got to get tough for prison and just got to the point where every every night like i was too afraid to sleep i i couldn't sleep until he'd fallen asleep i'd be on the bottom bunk and if I'd fallen asleep, he'd just come down and, and just start bashing me up, basically. And that was, like, I was terrified. And, and the other thing that's crazy is this guy wasn't, um, he wasn't as big as me. Like, I was actually bigger than him. But I think the fear that I had was that, you know, this guy had been in jail in and out you know, his whole life, he, he murdered or caused the murder of his own child, um, beating it because it was crying till it, till it passed away. I mean, like terrible, horrible. And I think when you come across people like that, it doesn't matter how big they are. It's you just know that they're willing to go a lot further than you, you know, because I, I had a lot of people, even in prison at the time, that were saying, you know, we can hear you at night, you know, yelling out things like that. Like, we know what's going on. Like, why don't you, you know, teach him a lesson or... And I was just, in all honesty, I was just, I was just absolutely terrified. Um, and I got out and I was a mess. Um, so you, might, you, just, you just ground it out. You just grinded out that, that six months. To someone that's yeah. ne never come close to that world, and, and, and I ask this question knowing it's a ridiculous thing to ask, right? But yeah. why, why do you not just tell someone? You know, why do you not just tell the guards? Surely they're there to provide some kind of authority and, and safety for you. And, you know, so, so that's the question, and I know you're going to yeah. laugh at me by asking it, but why, why do you not do that? <laughs> what is it really like? Look, uh, there's a couple of reasons why. A, um, the guards know what's going on and they don't care. I mean, the guards put me in a cell with this guy on purpose. Um, and the other reason is that if you do tell the guards or something happens, uh, you might get transferred to another unit, maybe even another prison, but the word travels and you are then, you know, you're labelled as, as a dog um, and it doesn't matter what you did. So even, even in that example, that most people would probably agree that 
hey, what was happening to me was not good. Um, but they would still come after me, look to assault me just because I had that label. Um, it's just a different code. They live by a different set of rules. Um, pretty terrible rules, actually, because there's predators in the prisons that get away with a lot of stuff because of those, you know, unspoken rules. Um, really, it's just more trouble than it's worth. I, The guards actually found out what was happening and they pulled me out of that cell. It was two weeks before I was released. And what happened is every week you get to submit a bit of a shopping list if you've got money in your prison account that friends or family have donated. You can buy chocolate bars and cans of Coke and things like that. And, and um, look, I didn't have anyone putting money in, in my prison account, I um, but I'd get $15 a week that the prison gives you so you can buy soap, you can buy deodorant, you can buy toothpaste. And I had been saving it up the whole six months. And so I had two $300 there and I thought, look, maybe that will help me when I get out. Um Anyway, so this guy was just filling out my form every week, getting his chocolate and his cans of Coke and things like that. And I had a broken leg also. <laughs> um, I'd gone into prison with a broken leg. I was in a wheelchair. So all this stuff that was happening to me, this guy, like I couldn't defend myself. I had a broken leg. I was getting around on crutches. But anyway, this uh, this one day I was out in the yard and the guards had called me up and said, look, um, Cuthbert, you've got to go to the hospital. Okay, why is that? Oh, you've got to go get an x-ray. We're going to see if we can take your cast off, blah, blah, blah. No worries. And um, and just that act of going to talk to the, the guards for, you know, that 30 seconds, my cellmate's thinking, what are you doing? What were you talking to them about? What, you know, what did they want? What did you say? You didn't say anything to them, did you? Already, you know, paranoid thinking. Because, it, again, it's another rule is that you don't talk to the guards. You don't even say, hey, nice day, you know, good morning. Like, nothing like that. You don't talk to them. Um, they're the enemy. Um, but anyway, I said, look, I've just got to go to hospital. I've just got to get maybe my cast off, something like that. And he just said, oh, no, no, you're not. And I said, what do you mean I'm not? Like, they're the guards. They tell me what to do. Yeah, no, you're not. You go back up there and you tell them you're not. And I was like, oh, he's like, yeah, because I want to get, you know, my chocolates and my uh, cans of Coke and things today. Like, he was worried that I was going to leave the unit, go to hospital, never come back, and he was never going to get his chocolate bar. That's all. That's all he was worried about. So I went back to the guards and I said, oh, yeah, look, sorry, guys. You know, today's not a good day. Uh, uh, pretty busy today. <laughs> um, I, I can't go. And then the guards are looking at me like, we tell you what to do here. You're in prison. You know, what else are you doing? You know? And then um, I went back to my cellmate and he goes, hey, what'd you say? I said, look, I, I told him I, I can't go. And then uh, they just laughed. Like they said, you've got to go. And then he just started bashing me up right then and there. They pulled me up, pulled me out. And they said, oh, like, what's going on? Like, we saw what's going on. And I was like, I didn't talk. I didn't say anything. I kept my mouth shut. They said, look, we'll send you off to hospital. We'll talk about it when you get back. Sent me to hospital. Actually, I didn't even get to hospital, yet I, I was in the sort of reception where your prisoners come in and out. And they've got, you know, a whole bunch of gates, you know, obviously to make sure no one can escape and everyone coming in and out has got to get strip searched and things like that. And um, I remember they were strip searching me and I was just covered head to toe in bruises, cuts, things like that. 
And the guards obviously saw that and they were both looking at each other like, this guy's getting, um, he's getting abused and, and stuff, right? And um, they didn't say anything. I just remember this silence. And then one of the guards just said, are you okay? And I just started crying. And, and I just lost it because it was the first time anyone in that prison system had, you know, basically showed me any kindness or care at all. But again, I still didn't say anything, went to the hospital, come back, and then, you know, they strip searched me again and they're like, they're like look, we're taking photos, you know, we know what's going on. Um, so they pulled me out of that cell. Um, it was two weeks before I got out. So that had just happened to me and I was, I was a mess. Uh, I didn't use drugs or drink when I got out. I was just... And I'm glad I didn't because I probably could have easily just gone down that path of, you know, get heavily into drugs and alcohol to try and deal with that trauma. But um, I, I was in a homeless shelter for a couple of weeks and then they, they got me a, a social housing place for my, to myself and I just wouldn't leave. I wouldn't leave. I would just sit there and read books, you know, 24-7. I was too afraid to go outside. I had, you know, what I would say now is severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was, even though I knew that I was safe and that I wasn't in prison anymore, I didn't want to go out into the world. Like I just locked myself in a room for probably another six months. So, um, so similar to the yeah. kind of the X-Man Academy for kids that you went to where, you know, you kind of learn <laughs> all the all the craziest aspects of life. Yeah. You, you yeah. had a choice in prison as to whether you just grind it through or, or you know, almost shudder your way through, which it sounds like you did, you know, just kind of got through it that way rather than slotting into the system and building a reputation and trying to play it that way. So, yeah. so, so yeah. then you're out and, you know, you're in you're in housing so you know you're out of prison but you just you're still just a shell of yourself and at what point do you start to wake up and go right I've got to do something different now what was the catalyst for that it wasn't me I, I I've got to say I can't credit myself with really doing anything I I had an incredible psychologist and when I say incredible you know he didn't didn't do any experiments on me that, you know, changed my perceptions of, of things or, you know, he, he didn't do anything physically or mentally to make change. But what he did is he just believed in me uh, at a time when I don't think anybody else did. You know, I was very isolated. I was very alone. Um, and he encouraged me to start studying. You know, I was reading a lot of books because I wasn't going outside. I was too afraid. I didn't want to face the world. Really just was just going to live away uh, and be a hermit or something. Um, he encouraged me to start going to the library, studying. That's, I guess, where it started. And then from that, um, you know, I, I started out with a, a couple of short courses online, actually, um, and I achieved those. And so for someone that hadn't done a lot of schooling as a kid, um really you know i hadn't gone to uni hadn't finished high school hadn't got a high school certificate um that was a big deal for me so just with his encouragement that little it was the baby steps 
oh, now I've, I've completed a course and I, I was doing psychology courses. Um, and that got me into then university where I was studying a psychology and law degree. I've just finished um, the law actually, but I, it was those baby steps where then I had achieved something and I had accomplished something that I had that self-worth. I had some of that purpose coming back. So it was, Hey, I'm capable. I can do this thing. Um, so then I sort of became my own inspiration and motivation and started volunteering. I, in my younger years, had volunteered at various places. When I was getting homeschooled, my mum used to send me out to volunteer places to get that social connection. Um, so I've always been a volunteer. And I, I, I asked a couple of friends that I'd met here in Cairns, I said, oh, look, where can I get volunteer? And I started out at a cancer wellness centre where, you know, we had people coming in that were at the end of their life or they were, you know, going through chemo and, and not feeling great and just being able to help them was the start. So at the same time, I've got that purpose because I'm helping others. I'm doing something good. So I feel good about myself. Plus I'm elevating myself because I'm educating myself and I'm, I'm finishing these courses and subjects. And it was just a day-by-day thing. Um, it was baby steps. So I can't say, you know, I just woke up one day and all my problems were fixed or um you know something happened to me and it was a miracle um it was just probably a period of maybe the first two years um getting that confidence you know i I met a partner here she's incredible um friends here that took me under their wing accepted me for who i was um and really just supported me um and then you know it's just just life really then you know you get more friends um i did more study i accomplished more i started volunteering with more organizations and i started looking into the youth crime issue here um we have a huge youth crime issue and i thought you know i was sort of one of those kids you know i ended up in a mental health facility for you know being a bit you know misunderstood and you know, getting into trouble and not fitting at school and, and, and all of that sort of thing. So I felt like I could relate to these kids. And and so I started thinking, what am I going to do with my psych and law degree? I'd originally thought I was going to be a psychologist and, and help people in the mental health space. After studying, I've gone more into the law space and the advocacy and the human rights and, and helping people in that way. Um, I'll hopefully be admitted as a lawyer uh, this year. Um, so I started getting into that and I thought, well, you know, that's a good space having that legal background, but I've also been through the system. I've been to prison. Um, I've got those experiences. We need to help the kids. And I started advocating for a 24 hour youth center here in Cairns and, uh, registered a charity, uh, started applying for grants and funding and things like that. And one of the current counselors who was also the Cairns MP in the past, Uh, the Member of Parliament for Cairns, he asked to have a coffee with me uh, one day, um, Rob Pine. So he's he's a quadriplegic. He he, he had an accident where he jumped off a boat. Uh, I think it was his in-law's yacht when he was about 20, snapped his neck, um, completely paralysed. And um, he didn't let that hold him back. You know, he served as a Member of Parliament and Council and done a lot of incredible things in a a motorised wheelchair. 
so I met up with him and I, I found him quite inspirational. And, and he said, have you thought about council? And I just laughed because I, I thought, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he, and he said, like, you know, have you thought about getting into politics and being on council? We could use some young people like you that are getting out there in the community and volunteering and, and want to do, you know, you've got fresh ideas and, and you want to help, you want to contribute. And I just laughed because I thought, look, I've got a criminal history. Um, I'm also like I'm covered in tattoos. I've never seen another politician covered in tattoos. We actually have one now. There's a actually she's copped a lot of slack as well. Uh, a former stripper in uh, Melbourne covered in tattoos as well. Um, and she's the youngest, I think, member of parliament in Melbourne. And yeah, she's at least set that precedent for having tattoos. So it was just a seed that was planted, you know, a couple of years ago. And and because I've just been in the community, volunteering, going to different events, helping a hand, I guess I've naturally been on the campaign trail anyway. Without so you'd popped up on his it. radar. So he was aware of you. Yeah. You know, he'd seen someone yeah. doing some work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, it's only got to be maybe within the last 18 months to two years that I've started sharing my story. So I was in Cairns basically unheard of. Nobody knew who I was. I, you know, got nice clothes and really just presented myself well, did the volunteer work, but didn't talk about my past. You know, I was at that point where I, I really wanted to move past it and, and forget about it. You know, I wanted to pretend that it didn't happen. It was still quite traumatic for me to even think about. It was the encouragement of, of Rob Pine, this former MP that sort of took me under his wing. Again, someone that believed in me and also a, a guy that I follow and have a lot of respect for, Russell Manser, who, who spent 26 years in prison and, and now he's doing, you know, great stuff, real positive, positive stuff. And I've seen him on, you know, TikTok and things like that. And he was sharing his story. And so I started sharing mine. And all of a sudden, like, and, and this was almost overnight. I had people reaching out, wanting to do podcast interviews. People wanted to hear my story. People also felt I wasn't hiding anything, and I felt better myself. I felt like there was this weight lifted off my shoulders. I, I truly felt like, why didn't I start talking about this stuff earlier on? And I've had people reach out to me that have had, you know, incredibly traumatic experiences, but they go, look, because you shared your story, now I follow you, you've inspired me, um, you know, just letting you know that, or now I can share my story, now I can get out and go and find a job. Um, and I guess running for council is another extension of that. You know, I have a lot of people now, um, I'm getting a lot of media attention, like national media attention, um, and for the Cairns little old Division 4 seat in Cairns, you know, no one's ever cared about that before, um, <laughs> despite, you know, the local newspaper. But I've got people calling me from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, um, you know, wanting to run stories about being a former jailed criminal, you know, now running for council. And it's, you know, I guess it's got that, um, for the media, it's got that click that click factor, you know, people think, oh, what's that all about? But it's also for a lot of people quite inspirational. And I've got, you know, a following now across Australia of all these people that are behind me that I've never met, 
you know, but they reach out to me every day and like, hey, love what you're doing, love the videos, love you sharing your story. Um, and that has been so incredible for me personally. Um, it's just validation of, of what I'm doing. It's like, uh, you know, lets me know that I'm on the right path and I'm doing something right. What's your relationship with the media like? And, and is it different whether it's national versus local? So I'm, I'm nearly 10 years in Australia <laughs> and I'm coming to learn yeah. that there's some nuance with media and, and quite often with local media in particular. And I'll, I'll leave it at that and get your angle. Yeah, look, I um, so I've been getting some positive national media. Um, now, I think Sydney and Melbourne are—they're just a bit ahead um, in general of things. Um, they're a little bit more open to um, people like myself with my story. You know, they're a bit more open to change. They're a bit more welcoming of you know if you're LGBTQT plus you know, if you're Indigenous, things like that. Whereas where I am up here, you know, in the north of, of Queensland, there's still a lot of racism. There's a lot of um, people are very closed-minded um, up here. They're not open to new things. They don't they don't like criminals and former criminals and things like that. So the, the, the media I've had locally hasn't been great, um, hasn't really been very supportive. Um, but in saying that, I'm also running for council. So it is their job to scrutinise really someone. Is this the person that we want to vote for? Is this the person that we want elected? Do we want a criminal or a former criminal running for council? So, look, I get that. It would be interesting to see post-election what kind of, you know, whether I win or lose, what kind of attention that I get. Would it be more positive knowing that I had nothing to gain anymore? You know, would they cover you know, those feel-good stories of, hey, he's out in the community and, and he's done this, you know. Um, little things like that. Like I, I packed 2,000 meals on the weekend. I've, I've picked up 50 beds for flood-affected victims. I've been non-stop every single day doing what I can um, and the media doesn't want to cover it here locally. But nationally, um, people have been, you know, running, I think, positive stories. I I had one that news.com.au did, which was, you know, they're one of the largest media companies in Australia. And and it was about me working with and alongside the former magistrate that sentenced me, you know, when I was younger. Um, an incredible story in itself. Um, but it was quite positive because they framed it as in here is this young person that, yes, um, had some struggles, had some hurdles, did the wrong thing, ended up in prison. But look at what he's doing now. He's got a law degree. He's president of his university law society. He's working with the magistrate who once sentenced him. Um, yeah, there is some difference there. Um, but it's also, you know, the media, depending on who it is or what company it is or, or where they're based, they've got to think about their audience. You know, what do their audience like? What are their audiences clicking on so they can sell ads and things like that? So I feel like there's a difference between you've got your tabloid journalists that just want, you know, the headline, they want people clicking, that's how they make money. And then you've got your investigative journalists that, you know, want to spend a little bit more time on a story, hash it out, um, do some feel-good stuff. Um, and I've sort of got, the mix of both 
So I have a, I, I tell people that I have a love-hate relationship with the media because you never really know when you sit down with a journalist um, how it's going to turn out. Are they going to twist your words? You know, quite often we'll, we'll do, let's say if it's something on TV, we might film for half an hour and they end up using 30 seconds of what you had to say. Um and that's just how it is, and they're just doing their job. But I just try to be open-minded, honest, transparent. Um, yeah, I, I just think that for me it's been so freeing. Um, it's it's just a weight lifted. It's like I can just be who I am now. And then having the support of people, you know, reaching out to me is great as well because it's like, hey, I wasn't sure, you know, if I was going to get ridiculed telling my story. And I think a lot of people in my situation that have been to prison or have done something wrong or, you know, have been abused or molested, sexually assaulted as a child, you know, they think they're scared. There's so much fear about telling your story because you don't know, you know, uh, a lot of victims, they don't know if people are going to believe them. They don't know, you know, how it's going to be received. Are they going to get ridiculed, criticised? Um, and so I'm glad that I made that jump because I'm in such a great point in my life now where I'm, I'm open about everything. You know, the, my closet door is open. <laughs> There's nothing in there for the media to find. If they run a story, I just have a laugh and go, okay, well, I shared that 12 months ago. So... It doesn't cause me any anxiety or anything, and I'm not living in fear. I just go, I just move on. Yeah, so you yeah. can just concentrate on doing your job now. You don't have to look over your shoulder yep. anymore. Yeah. What What's your relationship yep. with the electorate like then? So, so you, you know, you say that north of Queensland, yep. people, you know, can be closed-minded, but yep. obviously, you know, you love the electorate that you're working for, and and on, at an individual yep. level, you know, you're starting to yep. build those relationships, and they're starting to believe in you. What's What's that yep. like? The interactions that you have with them. Look, it's, I've got to say it's mostly positive. You know, there are people that it doesn't matter what you do in life. Um, it doesn't matter how much you've changed. It doesn't matter how much good that you are doing. They will always see you as a criminal or for something that you've done in the past. Um, and I think you just need to understand that and accept that um, and go, well, that's not going to stop me doing what I'm doing, you know. Those people, you're never going to reach. You're never going to, you know, change their minds. So just keep doing you. Um, and I've got to say that that's a very small minority of people. Um, and in saying that, I mean, I do a lot in the community. So for me, you know, I'm not sort of just going around telling everyone, hey, so I was bad in the past, but now I'm good. I'm generally out there in the community doing all this good stuff and you know some people see it in the media they see my social media um and you know obviously i promote that and so a lot of people are thinking yeah okay well maybe this guy is okay and and because we do have the huge issue with youth crime at the moment that's our big issue it's something none of the other councillors or candidates want to tackle Everyone's playing the blame game. It's a state issue, federal issue. And I'm the only one that's sort of tackling it head on and saying, well, hey, that was me. I understand it. I know its causes. Therefore, I've lived it. 
I know how to prevent it. I know how to do things in that space where we can work with these kids and start changing their lives and turn them around. And people love that. People are like, hey, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be you. You know, the police have tried, the courts have tried, the government's tried, the system's tried, the system's failing. It's letting the kids down. It's also letting the community down because, you know, there's people that live in fear. They don't know if they're going to get broken into tonight or whether their car's going to be there in the morning. So having someone like me that is just really taking just on the front foot and saying, hey, this is something that I'm diving into, and I've been there and I have that experience, I think really resonates with people. Um, and that's just what I've found, you know, meeting people, knocking on doors, um, out volunteering, you know, even just going to the shopping centre and, you know, people sort of grab you and say, hey, I saw you or I saw you on Facebook or I heard about you and, and things like that. And I think what you're doing is great. So, and I, I, I have to agree. I, I think, you know, with that problem in itself, that issue of youth crime is it's, it's going to take someone like me um, that does understand it um, to get in there and relate with the kids. You know, they don't, they can't build relationships with anybody else really it's got to be someone that's been there that's done that you know I've, I've been through the trauma i've been down the hard roads that they've been down uh, being institutionalized criminalized um so i can relate but my job is to try and get to them before they get on that path you know before they enter prison before they commit those types of crimes that set them on that cycle is trying to get them earlier um, and again, it's another thing that drives me now um, in the work that I do, whether that's running for council or whether that's making legal submissions to uh, new laws that are being proposed. I do quite a bit of that. Um, I did one with the magistrate who sentenced me uh, to the uh, Youth Justice Reform Select Committee uh, just before Christmas. Um, I'm just working on, you know, my, I'm drawing purpose from working on preventing kids going through the same thing that I did. So how bad is it? Um, Are we seeing big percentage upticks in the data of the number of offences in Cairns? Look, it's come down over the last 12 months. They've just put out a new report. But, you know, why I don't like those statistics is because I know that those statistics have gone down and I know that you know, we are keeping more children in watch houses and prisons because our youth prisons are full. Um, there is a proposal to build a new youth prison here where I am um, in Cairns, and I'm against that. Uh, I, I think prisons traumatise people. We should keep them out of prison if we can. Um, you know, and it's just, you think about it for a kid, say they have, you know, 12 to 17-year-old kids, there's a big difference between the mindset of a 12-year-old and a 17-year-old. And if you've got 17-year-old kids that are, you know, they're having, well, basically they're 17, they're probably drinking, drugging, having sexual intercourse outside, you know, with, with girls, uh, a lot of them um, stealing cars, breaking into houses, even, even carrying weapons, things like that. They're, they're at really the high end of the crime spectrum and you take a 12 year old who may be in custody because he just happened to tag along with his friends and he was sitting in the back seat in a stolen car that was in a car accident 
he wasn't driving, but he was there. He's in there. Um, now he's hanging out with these 17-year-old kids that are saying, hey, you can do this, you can do that. And, you know, they become friends with them. Um, a lot of them are cut off from their friends and family while they're in prison. Um, a lot of the kids here, for example, they're sent down to Brisbane. So their families, uh, a lot of the families up in the Cape, Indigenous communities, low socioeconomic communities, they can't afford to get on a flight to go down to Brisbane to visit their child for an hour. Um, so they don't. So these kids are in there for six months and then they get out and they think, well, my family's let me down, the system's let me down. Who have I got? I've got my bros from prison, the older kids, and they're hanging out with them and getting into more violent crime. And and I say this a lot. I, I say this to anybody that is, you know, pro-prison. I, You know, there's a lot of people that just say, oh, look, lock them all up. Um, and I say, look, that, that doesn't work long term. Um, short term, yes, that's great. If you lock all these kids up, well, then there's no crime because there's no kids out there. But when those kids are released, they're more violent, they're carrying weapons. Instead of breaking into houses, stealing cars, you know, they're committing rapes, they're stabbing people, you know, they're, they're holding up, you're doing armed robberies at servos and their level of violence um, is, a lot, is a lot higher. You know, they're violent because they've been traumatised in the prison system at the same time as their support networks, their family, their friends have dropped off. They haven't had contact there, so they feel like no one cares about me. Um, it's me against the world. They have a lot of hate, a lot of anger, a lot of sadness, and they get out and their children still, even if they're 17, they're still young people, um, you know, young minds and... They don't know how to deal with that and they're not getting enough support. So, you know, I tell people, I say, look, you, you might want to lock a kid up. I, I get that. But if we do that, we're going to see more violence. We're going to see more crime in the future. That's not the way to prevent crime long term. Yeah. I mean, and but, really, I've been in the X-Men Academy for crime in that sort of scenario. Yeah. So if elected as a as a counsellor in this yeah. division, what yeah. what kind of levers are available to you? to start to make a difference to this problem? Look, firstly, it's a having the support of people behind me voting for me, you know, to be able to say, hey, I had, I've got 12,000 people in my electorate. So to get across the line, I really need a good four or 5,000 votes. You know, to say that I have that support, then when I speak to the Queensland Parliament, the State Parliament, I'm then a councillor. You know, I'm someone that has the support, I've been elected, I've got people behind me. So, you know, I've been asked to speak to the Queensland Parliament twice uh, because of my history and my past and now what I'm doing and now being a law graduate uh, to speak to them about new legislation and things like that. Now, being able to do that as a councillor, as an elected councillor, you know, it just adds more weight to anything that I have to say. You know, it means that maybe people will listen to me a little bit more, you know, there will always be those people that think I can just write off what you say because you're just a former criminal. But to be a former criminal that has turned their life around to the point that they've now got the support of the people and they're being elected, you know, people have to listen to that. And that's the people at the state and federal levels where I can make that impact. But locally, locally, there's things that we can do. We get to vote on where the council spends their money. You know, for a long time, council has just been really people think of councillors looking after your footpaths, your roads, um, your bin collection. 
And that's all true. They do do all of that stuff. I'm a candidate that wants to tackle the big issues. Here in Cairns, for example, we spend $3.6 million a year on security guards in our CBD that walk around and, you know, they're meant to be deterring crime and things in the CBD. But, you know, I I think they just walk past it for the for the most part. Um, That's an incredible money that amount can be of better money. Spent. <laughs> yeah. Um, we just increased it by $1.2 million for an additional five officers. So they're on couple of hundred grand a year each um to walk around and and i think it's a waste of money um really it's about making people feel safer people in the cbd tourists especially like knowing that there's someone in a fluoro jacket um that looks like a police officer uh makes them feel makes them feel safer because we do have um homeless people drinking in the parks and the streets and things like that the security guards just walk past them. And if they're causing a trouble, you know, um, assaulting anybody, they call the police and the police remove them. So the security guards themselves aren't really doing anything. It's a, it's a lot of money I think we can spend elsewhere. Um, What's your relationship with the QPS a, like? You know, look, as again, a perspective it's, it's counselor, a love-hate. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a love-hate. You know, there's some police officers that I get along with really well. Um, I also find that it's the more experienced officers, the older officers, the detectives, the heads of things. I find that, you know, your beat cops, you, the guys that wear the uniforms, the guys that are just, you know, they go around, they pick on people, they've got attitudes, they're new, they've got points to prove. I've never really got along with many of those sort of, you know, ground level uniform cops, but um, I've had some conversations, you know, even when I've spoke at parliament, obviously the police are invited in to speak as well. And I'm talking to then, you know, while we're sitting there having a coffee, I'm sitting there talking to, you know, deputy commissioners and, and, and police officers that run the region or the region command, things like that. And I have great relationships, I think with them, like I have great, uh, chats with them. Um, I don't know how they feel. <laughs> you'd you'd have to work with them, wouldn't you? If elected, you'd be working with the QPS yeah. on initiatives yeah. and, and things. Yeah. Yeah, look, and, and yes and no. I mean, so council doesn't fund the police. That's a state-level thing. But council, you you are expected to to work with them. You know, it's let's say we're having some issues in a certain area of, of town. It's up for council to say, hey, we need some more police in that area or surveillance in that area or drive-bys or something like that. So you've got to have that working relationship, you're right. And um, so when is the election? March 16. So just under two months at the moment. It's about seven weeks. So what does the process look like between now and then? And am I right in thinking that the seat's currently vacant? It was until yesterday afternoon, actually. Right. <laughs> Uh, that was a bit of a surprise for me. So we have here in Cairns, we have nine councillors and a mayor. Uh, there's 10 all up. Our mayor uh, resigned early, just about a month or two ago. And what happened is that left our mayor position vacant. Uh, so a vote took place and it just happened to be the area that I'm running in, the division I'm running in. 
the councillor that's been there for 12 years became the mayor, leaving my division vacant. So because it's less than three months to an election, they proposed uh, and they had to appoint the councillor. They couldn't leave it vacant, but they also wouldn't go through the expense and effort of having a by-election either. So it just meant that the current councillors get to vote on an interim replacement for the next two months until the election. Um, we tried that on the 21st of December and that turned into a stalemate. Uh, the councillors couldn't agree. There was a lot of backwards and forwards. The reason for that is we have a team here in Cairns that has a majority uh, called the Unity Team, which is really unheard of outside of Brisbane. So usually local government and local politics, everybody is independent and they just represent their area. It's usually only the state and federal level where you get your Labor parties, your Green parties, your uh, Liberal parties. Uh, but in Cairns, we have, I guess, our, our own little uh, unity party and they had the majority. So obviously they wanted to uh, appoint their candidate. Uh, it's a paramedic, Jeremy Neal, who's running against me. Um, and they tried, they couldn't get him in. But yesterday afternoon, they had a special meeting Um to appoint him, and this time the independent councillors basically just let it happen. Um, they had raised conflict of interest issues prior, and that's because uh, this guy, Jeremy Neal, he's been depositing money into the bank account of the Unity Team councillors. He's been doing that. The purpose is because they're running together in the election is to pay for advertising and things like that. The independent councillors saw that as a bit of a conflict because how could you appoint someone that's also putting money in your bank account? I mean, it looks like you're paying for position and I have to agree. Uh, but, um, yes, yesterday afternoon, the independent councillors, I think, had sort of just had enough. Uh, one of them abstained from voting. She said, look, I, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's fair. I don't agree with it. Um, but I'm not going to vote. Um, so then, uh, because of the majority, they voted him in. So they really wanted him in because now for the next two months he can go around telling everybody that he's the Division Four councillor and hopefully, you know, he gets a little bit of traction before the election and people think, oh, he's in the job, he's been in there for two months. Yes, he'll get a vote. That's their strategy. Um I don't really think um, it's a good strategy. They've, they've got a lot of criticism, even locally. The no local newspaper has criticised them and a lot of the comments on social media have been critical of that. Um, and really, in effect, this person, Jeremy Neal, he's, he's now, uh, he has to attend one council meeting uh, in the next two months because councils in caretaker mode. And he gets paid twenty thousand bucks. Mm. So is it so, 10, 10 grand a month? Because I think you were talking about thirty before, yeah, but obviously a month yeah. passed. And you were going to pledge yes. all of that to charity, <laughs> weren't you? If, if you got that, that yes, big. yeah. And and I challenged every other candidate to do the same. Um, I don't need the money. I'm all about community, and I, I um, am all about doing volunteer work. And I thought, hey, you know what? If it's about the money, let's take the money out of it. Let's give it away to charity for a good cause. Obviously, you know, it wasn't a big surprise that nobody else, um, none of the nominees took me up on my on my offer or my challenge. Um, 
because I think it's wrong. You know, it's it's a lot of money to do nothing. Um, I think, and, and I'm all about really. I'm a very open, genuine person, and I think people can see that. I mean, I hope that they see that. But I'm about hey, looking at the big bigger picture. I don't need this. You know, twenty thousand dollars. I don't. I don't want to. I, I would feel guilty accepting that to do nothing. And I thought, why not put it back into the community and show people what I'm really about, which is about giving back to the community. And the, so the, the last two months of the campaign and all the work you've done prior to this point, yeah. how, how is that campaigning funded? And is it different if you're incumbent already in the seat uh, to, to someone that's coming in or is it the same? So in Queensland, every local government, every candidate has a $15,000 cap. So that means that you are not allowed to spend more than $15,000 on your campaign. Um, you can fund that yourself. I'm self-funded. Uh, other candidates may have donations, whether that's from friends or family, whether that's small businesses. Um, I'm not into uh, taking money from others. Um, I, I just feel uh, I, I just feel guilty. I think I'm running because I want to do more in the community. I, I don't expect the community to have to pay for that. Also, I would feel terrible if I didn't get in and I'd wasted $15,000 of someone else's money. Um, so I'm self-funded. The mayoral candidates, I think they can spend $150,000 hmm. um, if you're running for mayor. Obviously, it's a larger area. To put it into perspective, we obviously we have nine councillors in Cairns, so each division has about 12,000 voters. Um, I've just got to focus on one of those, but if you want to run for mayor, you've got to reach the audience of it's about 160,000 people. So obviously their budget's a lot higher. Um, yeah, so there is a cap, and the cap is to make it fair. You know, it's so so rich people can't come in and go, hey, I've got, you know, $100,000 to throw at this for advertising materials, paid staff and all of that. It's about saying, hey, this is local council, it's grassroots, it's community people, you know, and 15000 is a lot. I mean, I think it is anyway. I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, look, it's a, great, it's a great deal of money really for people, you know, to think about, you know, it's a it's a chunk of your savings <laughs> that potentially you won't get back. It's a, it's a bit of a gamble, um, and when you think that you know every sort of division on average has maybe three or four people running, that's a lot of money that gets spent on these elections. In in the Cairns area alone, you know it's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars that gets spent to elect nine people. Um, but yeah, that's. That's the process. I guess it, and it's great that it's capped and it does make it fair for two people running yep. side by side that are coming from a standing start. I guess if you're yep. already in the seat, it's not it's not impossible to believe that you could rock up to a TV interview to talk about something that's within the scope of your job, but but you're generating brand and you're generating image and you're generating momentum yep. for the election. Yes. So there is an advantage to being in the seat. Yes, yes, yes. Look, and that's it because people see you. Because if there's a local issue, yeah, uh, you you get in, you get invited to events. The media contacts you because the media says, you know, we want to get a quote from you about this issue. So for four years, these people are in. They're on TV, probably once a week, once a fortnight. They're in the newspapers regularly. So people see their face. 
again, the brand, the image. Um, so you do have the advantage being the incumbent. Um, yeah. So what is the what does the next two months look like? Where are you focusing? Mate, I am so busy. I uh, I did a little bit of door knocking this morning. Then I got out to the community to deliver some meals. I then went to a bit of a community giveaway to recognise some of those in the community that have just been going above and beyond. Um, again, that have lost things themselves uh, to donate goods and things to them. Um, and then I've come back here. It's uh, what is it? Quarter past nine on a on a Friday night, and I'm doing this uh, interview with you. So it, it doesn't stop, you know, from seven in the morning. And it's you know, I'm looking at probably fifteen hour day at the moment. So very busy, you know, lots of meeting as many people as I can, um, trying to juggle managing social media and still do work in the community. You know, that's pretty hard. And and I, to run a campaign and also give back to the community is very, very difficult. Now, there's some other candidates out there that, you know, show up for half an hour to get a photo op and things like that, whereas I've made a point where I stay there all day um, or half the day and I actually contribute, um, you know, if I'm going to film a video or do a photo or anything like that and try to raise awareness for the issues and some of the things that are happening. And I think that's really paid off for me as well because, you know, people talk and volunteers and other people can see that, hey, that guy that's running, he's he's really committed to the community. He's been out there helping us. Um, but for me personally, I'm still trying to juggle both, you know, so I'm still getting that. I'm doing that volunteer work, helping the community, getting that purpose um, that keeps me going, that makes me feel good about myself every day. I have to do a good deed every day. Um but then focusing on the campaign where I can and whether that's trying to, you know, do a media release or I'm doing social media or I'm at supermarkets meeting people, handing out flyers, door knocking, um, really anything that, you know, comes with, with campaigning and grassroots campaigning, you know, which is just about meeting people where they are and having conversations and introducing yourself. Have you had to take a pause on on work or other things like that during this? How are you feeding yourself during this time? <laughs> Look, I'm I'm very fortunate. I've got a few few businesses running um, that run without me. I've got an incredible partner. Uh, she works. She always, it's nothing new for her. She she works you know six seven days quite often um, in in her her role there. She manages a shop. Um, and again, it's just like small business, you know, you've got to be there, go above and beyond. So she puts in a huge effort. Um, she did spend one day with me door knocking this week, actually. She had a day off, a poor thing, and she came out to help me. So um, I'm glad that I've got that support, but I'm also glad that financially, you know, I have those businesses and things that, you know, I've been on the back burner at the moment and probably need a bit of attention, but, you know, I can take some time off to focus on this. That's good. So you understand small business, you understand crime, yep. and you understand the community yep. as well. Look, and that's really why, you know, I tell people that I'm, you know, really, I'm a great candidate. I mean, I, I, I can engage with everybody in our community. That's the disadvantaged people that have been to prison, people that have been homeless, people that are struggling. I also understand small business owners. I understand, you know, red tape, taxes, all of those things, those issues getting broken into. 
So I really have a mix of being able to understand most people, um, which is really unique. Um, there's a lot of candidates where they seem to gravitate towards one section of the community. You know, you might have someone that's uh, got experience in homelessness and they that's their issue that they care about and they wouldn't know the first thing about small business. They wouldn't know um, how to relate or engage with those people. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that the way my life has worked out, having the ups and downs, being able to make something of it has, has benefited me and, and put me in a position where it does. It makes me, I think, a good candidate, I think. Definitely. And this story in itself is fascinating. And, you know, the, all the twists and turns and the effort that you're putting in, you know, and I wish you the best of luck and I think you stand a really good chance for it. The reason I started this podcast originally was to really understand what what makes people great in their different fields. And I guess if you were to boil it all down and say, well, you know, what is it that I've pulled out of my my internal bag that's allowed me yep. to turn it around, focus on something, commit to it, and you know, do really well at it. What do you think it is that that you've done that other people could learn from? Look, that's a difficult one because I I I go back to my past uh, that has made me who I am. A lot of things I feel like I could have uh, I could have done without I could have done without some of that trauma and some of those negative experiences, um, but it is those experiences that made me who I am. I actually put up a post the other day where I questioned that I questioned whether would I still be the same person? Would I still care about the community and others as much as I do if I hadn't had those ex- experiences? So for me, I think it's about taking the negative and turning it into a positive. I've done that for myself and, and now it's it's positive for other people as well because I do do a lot of, you know, volunteer work and things like that for others. Um, but it's hard to package that up and give it to somebody. It's hard for me to say, hey, look, what you've really got to do is go out and, um, you know, experience some trauma. Um, or experience homelessness or experience, you know, something adverse. But I do think it is those adverse things that, you know, can make or break people because I know that in prison there was a lot of people that had really traumatic, adverse childhoods that didn't come out of it like I did. You know, it didn't make them stronger. Um, They turned to drug use and things like that. So I think I'm just one of the lucky ones. I think I'm just lucky that I made it through. I mean, there's been so many times there where I didn't think I was going to. Um, yeah, so it's really hard for me to sort of package that up and say, hey, if you do this, you're going to be successful. This is what I did. I, I think all that I did was adapt, adapt to the life situations that life threw at me. So, yeah, if I had to say anything, I think it would be be adaptive try to if negative things are happening or you have some struggles or hurdles think about how do i make a positive from that how do i and i do it every day with every single situation i put up a video yesterday i'd had a keyboard warrior saying some negative stuff about me and i challenged that person i said i'll pick you up 
I'll buy you a meal, um, come out and volunteer with me for the day and we'll do some good in the community. Taking that negative into a positive. Now, they didn't get back to me, um, so that didn't eventuate. But I'm always thinking as somebody that has been through so many struggles and hurdles in my life, I've got really, really good at overcoming them. Now, when something gets thrown at me now and I get a bit of anxiety, I get a bit depressed about it, I, I can snap out of that really, really quickly because I've done that. I've, I've just practised getting through the hurdles. So my advice would be learning or take some time to think about the negative and how you could transform that into a positive, in, into something that works for you. Great place to end. Shane, I really appreciate it. Good luck for two months' time in the election. Mate, thanks for having me on. And, yeah, it's been a great chat. <laughs> really has. Thank you. Thank you.